do come and bow down before you now. We bow down and we give thanks to you for all that you've given us and for the ability that you've given us so that we can give back in order that what we have may be shared and used for your glory. And Father, we pray now that we will bow down and seek you through your word and by your spirit that you might speak to us clearly this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's already getting a bit restless, this pigeon. hope it doesn't dive bomb me. Maybe if the sermon's a bit long, I'll be under attack. If it's anybody's pet pigeon, if you just take it away at the end, that'll be great. Okay, but thinking this week about the church, about vision and the church, about what kind of future vision we should have for the church, this led me into a fair bit of reflection related to the way particularly that my view of the church and therefore, my vision for the church has changed and altered, I'd like to hope and say, matured over the years. And the resulting picture that sort of came into my mind was of a, a little boy or girl who's always growing, you know, into their clothes. You know the kind of thing, everything that they're bought never seems quite to fit. You know, the cuffs on their sleeves or their shirts and their jumpers the buttons on their trousers, etc., just always seem to need to be turned up. Sadly, I have to confess that I'm now at the stage in life where the only kind of room for growth anymore that I need seems to be more about width rather than length. But let me share with you, though, why when I think about the church, it's this kind of, of picture, this kind of vision that comes into my mind. And that is that when I, I first got converted... I thought God's people were marvellous. I still do, most of the time. But they were just so loving and so caring towards somebody like me who was coming from a totally unchurched background. However, as, as part of all this, probably as an expression of some kind of unresolved personal insecurity, well, I thought that my church, Salcoats Baptist Church, that this was the church the way it was supposed to actually be. And so I found it very difficult to contemplate in my early Christian days that things could actually be done differently in any way, and even more difficult to imagine that things could be done better. And if anyone suggested this or said something that seemed to suggest this as a possibility, which occasionally they, they did, then that really ruffled my feathers. In fact, it got my back right up. Having, though, now been involved in church life for over, well over 30 years, and having looked and studied a little bit, at least down through the years, the people of God, the church, through history as well as in the, the pages of the Bible, well, now I know, and let me tell you, I really know, that no church is perfect. No denomination is is perfect. None of us have got it all right. None of us has got it all together. Rather, like that little boy or girl growing into their clothes, we've all got a bit of growing, a bit of maturing to do before God's vision for His church, His people, is perfected in us. In fact, you know, and I think this is just so exciting, for us as God's people, the growing never stops. For God has always got more for his people. 
The changes that God wants to make will never stop this side of heaven. People talk about the Reformation. Well, let me tell you, we're a reformed people. We should be who keep on being reformed, keep on learning more. But you know, there's a lot of talk uh, going around nowadays about vision, has been for 20 or so years, about us needing to catch the vision for the church. And all of this, though, for me, begs the question. That is, what is vision? What, in essence, is the vision we're supposed to catch? What's actually at its heart? Well, let me just here quote to you from a great book that's all about vision. It's a book by a man called Dan Sutherland called Transitioning. And this is what he says. What is vision? Vision is a picture of what God will do in his church if we get out of the way and let him loose to do it. So the process of vision is joining God in what he is doing and wants to do in the church. Have you you got that? Well, you see, right here, we're confronted by probably the major problem in church life in our day. The major hindrance to blessing. For there are lots of plans, lots of visions around in the church today. There is no shortage of these. In fact, in the last 20 or 30 years, there's probably more plans and schemes around for church vision and church growth than perhaps there's been in all the rest of church history put together. But you know, all of that time, the church has actually been, at least in the West, where most of this comes from, it's been declining. And why is that? Well, I believe because so often... These are our plans. These are our vision rather than the Lord. Because we don't take the time to do the things that are necessary to seek God's vision. Or alternatively, the plan we have is a part, or maybe was a part of God's vision, but what's, what's actually happening is that, that God's got more for us, or God's moved on. He's moved on to step two but we've stayed where we are. And so we're missing out on the here and now blessing of God. Just listen to what uh, Proverbs 19.21 says. It says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Okay then. So if vision is a picture of what God wants to do in the church, If the process of vision is about joining God in what he's doing and wants to do in the church. And if the problem is that so often we get in the way, our plans get in the way. Well then, how do we go about discovering this vision, God's vision, for his church? Well, let me suggest to you that that we need to begin by looking at a foundation for vision. We've got to put the, the basis in first. And that the two essential ingredients we need if we're to build the kind of foundation to find God's vision. And number one is information. We need information. Just listen to what it says at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah that is one of the best vision sources in the Bible. Nehemiah 1, 1 to 3. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, 
while I was in the city of citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Jerusalem with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. You see, before Nehemiah sought God's vision for his people, he first sought to gather all the information that he could about the circumstances they were now living in. For you see, he knew that if he didn't seek understanding, that he could then hardly expect God to give him vision. And how sensible, how true, how logical and down to earth that is. For if we don't seek to gain all the understanding that we can at the human level, then what right have we got to expect God to share his vision with us? And personally, I believe there are three main different sources of vision that, that we need to look at. First of all, I think we need to have information, sorry, information about vision that we need to look at. First, we need to look about what the Bible says, at what the Bible teaches about God's purpose for his people. Second, we need to research and we need to try and understand our community, the community we're sitting, the unchurched people of our community. We need to find out what makes them tick so that we can then seek ways of building bridges and of opening them up to God's purposes for them. Now, a while ago, I came across a comment that underlined for me just exactly how necessary and important this actually is. Here it is. This is the quote. Most churches claim that their target is the lost. Do you agree with that? Most churches would claim that their target is the lost. Well then, listen to what it goes on to say. However, a clear examination of their strategy, that is of their methods and their programs, the things we'll do will reveal to you that their actual target is mature Christians. A non-Christian world would not understand most of what they do because of the way they're doing it. But you know, just contrast that with Paul's approach outlined in 1 Corinthians 9.23 where he says, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. Now, now here be clear. Paul never gave an inch in relation to the fundamental truth, the fundamental message that he shared. Nor did Paul ever compromise his moral lifestyle standards. But he was willing to adapt his methods, his strategy, the way that he did things, according to the community, according to the culture he was trying to reach. Now, you see, this brings a challenge, I believe, to us, that we need to seek to understand 
our community. We need to seek to understand the people we are trying to reach. And while things like studies and data and statistics are valuable here, yet do you know what our best resource is to understand this community? It's you. You. If you, if we are ready to really look, really listen, and really try to understand this community that's out there, all around us. And until we do that, let me make this clear, we cannot truly receive or fulfill God's vision for His people. We can't. Finally, as as far as information is concerned, I believe we need to seek out and investigate model churches. Because, you see, there are churches today in Scotland who have done what we've talked about and who've done much more besides. They've looked at what the Bible says about the church. And they have looked at and they've worked out something of their community. And because of that, they have been led into what they believe is God's vision for them. They're fulfilling God's purposes for the church in their context. And they're being blessed as they do that. Often they're being abundantly blessed as a result of this. There are churches like that around. And we need to learn from them. Because while what God will do here won't be exactly the same, won't be replicated in terms of what He's done elsewhere, yet there is so much that we can learn from the experience of others. But moving on from information, the second essential ingredient that I believe is a a vital part of any foundation for vision is a broken heart. It's a broken heart. It's not all about the mind. The heart's got to be engaged. Listen to what it says in Nehemiah 1.4. It says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. You see, when Nehemiah realized how his people were living, when he realized the degraded condition of their lives, and when he lined that up with God's vision for his people, God's vision for humanity, what he wanted to do in them and for them and through them, well, it just broke Nehemiah's heart. And here in his tears... Nehemiah doesn't stand alone. No, he stands in good company. He actually stands in the very best of company. Because Luke 19.41 tells us that as Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem, that he wept. His heart broke over his people. So today, I, I want to say to you that until we get to the place where our hearts are breaking, as we see the lostness and the suffering of men and women in their sin, and as we then recognize maybe our seeming inability as the church at this point to reach them, until we get, though, to this place where this breaks our heart, where this is the first thing in our thoughts, the first priority of our lives, then we will not be able to truly see or fulfill God's vision for His church. We won't until we get God's heart for lost men and women. But let's say that we've done all of this. And we've got all the necessary 
information, and our hearts are breaking. We've laid that foundation for vision. What's next? What's next? Well, that's what we're going to look at just for a few moments just now, at the steps to vision, with the first step being one that I have to say personally, I take rather gingerly, because it is fasting. Fasting. I've got to confess that, that fasting is not something that by nature, something that in the flesh I find particularly attractive. I've got to tell you that. In fact, to the contrary, to me it's akin more to a form of torture to think of fasting. It tortures me. But you see, having that kind of attitude actually fit in beautifully to the modern church. Because the practice of fasting is, I think, almost non-existent in the church of today. But this wasn't so in the case of Nehemiah, was it? For having made his investigation, having had his heart broken by what he then discovered, what do we then read in Nehemiah 1.4? For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the King of Heaven. And you see, Nehemiah wasn't here being kind of freaky and, and fanatical. He wasn't doing something strange and unusual. Rather, it's us who are out of step. It's the church of today that's out of step. For fasting was consistently practiced in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New. And it was practiced for various reasons. For example, in the Old Testament, it was seen as a way to humble yourself before God. Ezra 8, 31. It was seen as a form of confession for Samuel 7, 6. As a form of repentance, Jonah 3, 5 to 8. And also as one expression of prayer, Daniel 9, verse 3. And in the New Testament, similarly, fasting is seen as a part of serious prayer, committed prayer, Acts 14, 23. And fasting is assumed to be part of the normal Christian life, Matthew 6, 16. Now, fasting for all these reasons, I think can have a part to play in our seeking God's vision for His people here. For sometimes we do have to humble ourselves, and we do have to confess and repent. Just one example, we have to repent and confess and humble ourselves in relation to the sin of pride. The pride that has made us continue to do things our way but it's been blatantly obvious that it's no longer working. Maybe once it did, but it's not now, and it's no longer the right way. But we've not been willing to stop and seek God. And sometimes there are other things that have to be dealt with maybe before we can begin to see more clearly God's way. For example, say even attitudes towards non-Christians where we maybe look down our nose at the very people Christ died to save. But what is without doubt is that fasting, in terms of, of giving up food or even something else that's maybe important to us, more, most important to us, it might be, I don't know, watching TV, or it could be for some time on Facebook. Eh? What about that? But giving that up so that we can have time for serious prayer 
This is vital. If we are to seek and if we are to find God's vision for our church. Let me just round this off here with two relevant quotes. First one, you don't find vision when you search for vision. You find God's vision when you search for God. Fasting is a serious part of that search. And do you get that distinction? For you see, searching for vision can become a, a theoretical intellectual exercise. It can become something that's all about us getting a nice and neat, impressive form of words. Now, when that's the case, then our vision will get us nowhere. It will mean nothing. The best it will achieve will be to look good pinned up on a wall. But if we seek God, though, and in seeking Him, find Him and find His vision, then that is of the Spirit, and that will lead to life and to power. The second quote, this time again from Dan Sutherland, and this is what it says, Do not underestimate the importance of fasting. I do not believe you can say with integrity that you sought God's vision for your church until you sought Him in times of fasting. Now, I just want to say here that, that I've found whole church fast, saying let's fast as a people, to be difficult to organize. And I've also found that they can be artificial because people feel pressurized to join in. They can do something for the wrong reason. What's far better is that individually we have a fervent desire to find God's will and we're prepared to fast to do it, as God lays that on our hearts. And I just ask you to consider that. The next step to vision is very closely related, for it is prayer. And again, Nehemiah here is a fantastic example, because he was committed to prayer in a big, big way. Because, you see, he understood the vital connection that there is between prayer and vision. Finding God's vision, Nehemiah 1, 5 and 6. I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And it's not only... Nehemiah, David too, King David, he recognized the connection that there is between prayer and vision. Just listen to the famous verse, Psalm 46, verse 10. It says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, now notice the order there. First, we must be still before God. Which I don't think it's pushing too far to assume means being still so that we can communicate with God. Second, as we are still and as we are in communication with God, so we will know Him. And if we know Him truly, we will know what He wants of us, what He wants us to do. And then third, 
as a result of this, God will be exalted. God will be glorified. Then there's also Jeremiah. That famous verse in Jeremiah that's been so important for so many Christians. Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm sure you know it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. However you see, this this promise in common with many of the promises of the Bible is actually based on a condition. And in this instance, the condition is found two verses further on in a verse that far fewer people know or quote. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You see, if we want God's vision for us, if we want to know the plans He has for us, if we want to do the will of God as a people here, then we have to seek Him with all our heart. And that must involve prayer. That must mean prayer. And you know, I know that we all agree with this in principle. But many of us are not all that good really, are we, at putting this principle into practice. Now partly at least I think it's because you know, coming from a a kind of Baptist tradition, we actually come from a servant tradition. We come from a tradition where the emphasis is on doing, getting things done, getting involved in mission. And there's a lot of good in that. There really is but we do need to find the balance. Because we can become so busy in trying to do things for God that we don't take the time we should to seek God. But the problem here is, with not spending time with God, the problem we're into is that those who who talk with God most usually hear God best. While those who talk with God least usually don't hear God at all. That's the problem. Let's finish with a final step to vision, and that is waiting. For there is often a a time of waiting before God reveals to his people his vision for them, as was the case here for Nehemiah. Now, Now, sometimes that's because we've got growing to do before we're ready to tackle what God has for us in His plan. Other times it's because God's got preparatory work to do in others, maybe in our community, before He can lead us further into His purposes. Sometimes, though, we just don't know why God keeps us waiting. But what we do always know is that because of who God is, that there is a reason a good and perfect reason. But if we keep on praying though, if we keep on seeking God, then we know that ultimately He will lead us into His vision. He will. As it says in Isaiah 40, 31, those who hope, alternatively wait on the Lord, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now, you know, we can try and shortcut all of this. We can. We can go our own way. 
And we might, in our own strength, be able to come up with some pretty impressive-sounding vision statements. You know, there's lots of things, lots of bits of paper in churches all around the country that sound absolutely fantastic. But let me tell you, that vision will fail. It will not move us forward into God's purposes. A vision in the flesh will not work. We need that vision that comes from God, from a people who are seeking God. And you know, there there are those who feel, just to finish, that that today as the church, and amongst all the, the kind of doom and gloom around us, that actually we are standing on the verge today of potentially, tremendously exciting times. That whereas in the first Reformation, then the doctrine of individual salvation was rediscovered, that now we stand on the verge of a second Reformation, where what it means for the church to truly be the church, to truly be the community of God's people, a true spiritual community, that this is about to be rediscovered. My prayer is that we here in Hamilton Baptist Church will be ready to pray and ready to fast, ready to seek God that we might find His vision for us and that we might play our part in what is to come, the exciting things that God can do in our day. Let's come and pray together. Father, we just want to thank you now for your glory and for your love, that you want to involve us in this wonderful mission. Father, we pray that you'll make your way clear to us, and that as we see your way, that we as your people will be ready to walk in it. This we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to...